Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo, the Supreme Court's injunction pushing back against shutdown orders affecting houses of worship. Nicholas Nelson from Fager Drinker joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Today we're talking about a recent case decided by the Supreme Court the day before Thanksgiving. So basically nobody was paying attention, but the case was officially called Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, New York versus Andrew M. Cuomo, governor of New York. So lots of New York there. But what does it all mean for houses of worship during these COVID-19 shutdowns? Well, luckily, we have a terrific guest here to join us. He's going to explain everything to us. Nicholas Nelson from Fagery Drinker. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. Good to be here. Absolutely. Let's get started right away. I want to talk about the facts of the case and the parties involved. So, Nicholas, can you tell us what happened and how did we get to where we are today? Well, at the root of it, uh, what happened was the COVID-19 pandemic, which, of course, we all know about. And New York obviously was the epicenter in the early stages of the coronavirus spreading in the United States. So throughout this year, Governor Cuomo of New York has issued various orders that closed or limited businesses and gatherings in his state. Now, the current set of orders uh, restricts certain houses of worship to either 10 or 25 worshipers inside their walls, depending on the geographical area that they're in. Also, if you've been following the news, you've heard that sometimes the governor has spoken rather critically about the Orthodox Jewish community. He's said that certain congregations are not following the right practices and, and that they're spreading the virus. So the plaintiffs in this case are the Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, uh, which operates many churches in New York City, obviously, and Agudath Israel of America, which is an Orthodox Jewish organization that operates several synagogues in the city. Now, these are pretty big buildings. Most of the churches hold more than 700 people in their pews. The synagogues have room for more than 400 people. And so what happened in this case is the churches and the synagogues basically said, look, we're happy to enforce social distancing and masking. We'll limit ourselves to a fraction of our building's capacity. We'll make pretty significant changes to our worship services to try to protect people from the virus. But it's been many months now, and enough is enough. You can't continue essentially shutting down our worship almost completely, limiting us to 10 people or 25 people. That violates our right to the free exercise of religion. And the result was they sued the governor. Just a quick little disclaimer there. I know that you represent one of the sides in this dispute. So which side is it? My law firm, Figury Drinker, uh, is not directly involved in this case, but the Diocese of Brooklyn is a client of ours in other matters. Okay, uh, understood, understood. I just wanted to give that information out to the audience. And so my next question is, I know it was a 5-4 decision. So how did the court come down? You know, who were, who were the concurring opinions and who were the dissenters? Yeah, well, the, the majority of the court, of course, uh, enjoined New York from enforcing those 10 and 25 person limits, at least temporarily they enjoined it while the litigation proceeds in the courts. Seems likely this is going to be permanent, but I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. The opinion of the Supreme Court was per curiam, so there's no, there's no single justice who gets authorship credit. And actually, these per curiam opinions often are unanimous or almost unanimous, but this one was not. It was basically a five to one to three decision. In the majority were Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. There were separate concurring opinions also by Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. The Chief Justice filed a dissent, which was on pretty narrow procedural grounds. And then there was a separate, wider ranging dissent by Justice Breyer, which was also joined by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. Tell us about the procedural history. Obviously, this one didn't get filed straight to the Supreme Court. It had to go up up the uh, ranks there in the court. So just kind of walk us through its uh, migratory uh, path as it got to the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, the path was a little bit unusual here because this, uh, the filing in the Supreme Court was an application for temporary emergency relief pending further litigation. So, uh, you know, when the, when the diocese and when Agudath Israel originally filed suit in the district court, uh, they actually each filed their own separate lawsuits that then kind of got coordinated in the lower courts. And both the diocese and Agudath Israel asked for preliminary injunctions. They asked that the court order that Governor Cuomo not be able to enforce these numerical restrictions while they were litigating the full case. Now, the district court issued an opinion about this preliminary injunction that actually said lots of nice things about how these plaintiffs are doing a good job limiting the spread of the coronavirus in their houses of worship. But the district court's opinion also said, you know, the signals that we're getting from the Supreme Court are that we're supposed to give the state a lot of latitude to make restrictions about how to deal with the pandemic. So I just don't think I should enjoin these rules at this point while the case goes on. Now, of course, you can immediately appeal the denial of a preliminary injunction, and the plaintiffs did that. They went right to the Second Circuit, and again, uh, as soon as they got their appeal on file, they filed a temporary emergency motion for injunctive relief while the rest of the appeal got litigated. Well, a panel of the Second Circuit also denied that motion. By a two-to-one vote, there was a dissent. And so the plaintiffs decided, all right, we're going to take this up even higher. So before the Second Circuit appeal proceeded any further, the plaintiffs went to the Supreme Court and they asked for the same temporary relief and joined these numerical restrictions while the litigation, well, actually not, not even just the litigation, but the appeal proceeds. So this was not a full certiorari petition where the Supreme Court first decides whether to take the case and then orders more briefing and holds oral argument. They didn't go through all of that. The Supreme Court just took the briefing on the applications and then it issued the opinion without any further ado. And in fact, as you mentioned, the court viewed this as pretty urgent because it issued its opinion in the middle of the night on the day before Thanksgiving. That is fascinating. You know, I don't think I've heard of a path like that before. And so what what does all that mean? At the end of the day, this is just an injunction. And as I as I read in the uh, court's opinion that the uh, it's subject to appellate review. So I guess what are what's still in the realm of possibilities for next steps if this case proceeds further, which is unusual because it's been at the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, you, you can distinguish between the theoretical possibilities and the more practical possibilities. Uh, what we know is going to happen is that the full appeal is now going to go forward in the Second Circuit. The numerical restrictions are not going to be enforced while the Second Circuit looks at the full appeal of the preliminary injunction. So at least theoretically, the Second Circuit can still decide the, the, the appeal either way. Uh, of course, it can say, Yes, we agree with the Supreme Court. Uh, we've looked at the whole appeal and we think the Supreme Court was right and we're going to we're going to grant the preliminary injunction against these numer- numerical restrictions at least as they apply to these plaintiffs. The Second Circuit also technically could say, you know, we took a fuller look at this appeal. We applied the principles the Supreme Court set forth in its earlier opinion, but we think on a full record these numerical restrictions actually are okay, at least as far as the preliminary injunction is concerned. Now, given what the Supreme Court has already said, that outcome probably isn't terribly likely. It's possible, but not likely. If the Second Circuit did that, the Supreme Court's temporary injunction that they've already ordered actually would remain in place so that the plaintiffs could then file a full certiorari petition and seek Supreme Court review. Now, Governor Cuomo would also have that option to seek Supreme Court review if he lost in the Second Circuit. But given what the Supreme Court has already said, you have to wonder whether that would be worth the effort. Now, even after all of that, I think that that probably, you know, all those appellate proceedings would still just technically decide the preliminary injunction issue. And in theory, there would, you'd still have the full case to, to litigate in the district court. 
But in practice, that probably won't make a big difference because it doesn't seem like there would be any significant new facts that would get developed in the full litigation. So most likely, as a practical matter, the preliminary injunction decision, whenever it comes down, whenever it, uh, wherever, however it winds up, will decide the whole case. Well, that's that's a lot of procedure. <laughs> so let's get into the red meat part of the case. So at the at the center uh, centerpiece of this case is the disparate treatment between houses of worship compared to quote unquote essential businesses and non-essential businesses in red zones and orange zones. So just briefly as you can, you know, talk about those red zones, orange zones, and then talk about how houses of worship were treated specifically different than similar essential businesses and non-essential businesses. Yeah, you're right that this is really the crux of the case. So at the beginning of the pandemic, back in the springtime, of course, almost all businesses and gatherings got shut down. But eventually, the approach that emerged in New York is that most places are allowed to operate with relatively few restrictions, while the governor can still designate certain smaller geographical areas for greater restrictions. And this is where the colors red and orange that you mentioned come in. The areas that are subject to greater restrictions are color-coded, depending on how severe the restriction is. So this is where we get those 10-person or 25-person limits on people in houses of worship. If the governor designates an area as a red zone, then houses of worship are limited to 10 people within their walls. In an orange zone, they're limited to 25. On the other hand, the same order includes a list of what it calls essential businesses that it says are necessary to the public health and welfare. That doesn't include houses of worship. Even in red zones, these essential businesses are allowed to operate without any capacity restrictions. And in orange zones, uh, the rules are even looser. Even most non-essential businesses can operate with no capacity restrictions. Now, these geographical zones get changed quite frequently, no advance notice when they change. And the way it happens is kind of an ad hoc process. At first, there were no criteria at all for what qualified as a red zone or an orange zone. Over time, there have been some guidelines that have emerged, but they're, they're not really strict, they're non-exhaustive, and they still leave a lot of discretion. So that's the regime that, uh, that most New Yorkers are operating under right now. Well, let's talk about those businesses. So I think this will provide a little meaning to it, sort of that disparate treatment. And so these businesses that were uh, non-essential and some of the ones that uh, were considered essential, they had big open floor plans and they had a lot of people going in there. So maybe just list the kind of businesses that were essential and non-essential and how they were treated differently compared to the houses of worship. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of them. Uh, the Supreme Court's opinion listed as essential businesses under this order, uh, things like acupuncture facilities, campgrounds, garages, chemical manufacturers, transportation facilities. There were some others too. And then, you know, uh, non-essential businesses included lots and lots of other things, except for a few, a few types of businesses where the risk of spreading the virus was considered to be even higher that were on a special list. Things like movie theaters and other stuff like that were treated differently. Okay. Okay. Now the the court ultimately decided on the uh, strict scrutiny standard of review. And so we have listeners, uh, Nicholas, that are not lawyers out there. We have some people that might be a little rusty in their constitutional law course. So can you explain the strict scrutiny standard and then why the court decided to go with that particular standard of review? Yeah. Well, you know, that we have all kinds of constitutional rights that are enumerated in the constitution. And from very early days, the courts have realized well, does that mean that these rights are completely absolute and you know there are never any exceptions? So for instance, does the freedom of speech allow you to shout fire in a crowded theater? And the court has said, well, no, there has to be some play in the joints. Uh, and the way that they've the way that they have 
created that play in the joints is by developing these standards of review. So for our most important constitutional rights, the court uh, applies what they call strict scrutiny, where if the government wants to infringe on one of these protected constitutional rights, it has to show that its regulation is, and this is the court's language, narrowly tailored to advance a compelling government interest. In other words, it has to be really important, whatever the government is trying to do, and this has to be the only way they could do it. So that's the standard that the court applied in this case under the free exercise clause, because the First Amendment of the Constitution says that we all have the right to the free exercise of religion. And I think there were really two factors that played into why the court did that here. One was the fact that this order that New York issued expressly created a list of what it called essential services, and it left religion off of that list. Now, the court didn't say this explicitly, but I think one of the motivating forces behind the justice's decision was that, hey, the, the free exercise clause of our Constitution gives us, the citizens, the right to decide for ourselves how essential or not essential religious practice is to us. The government doesn't have the power to make that decision for us, at least not if it cannot pass strict scrutiny. Then I think the second factor that the justices were looking at when they decided to apply strict scrutiny has to do with the fact that this pandemic is several months old now, and we're learning more about how this virus spreads and how the risk can be limited. So early on in the spring and the summer, the Supreme Court had actually received other emergency applications from churches that were asking to reopen, and the justices had denied those applications. The court didn't issue opinions in those cases, but its attitude seemed to be, you know, from what we understand about this virus, if you congregate lots of people for an extended time in one building, that's a good way to create a risk of spreading it. So if the state's going to shut down places where that happens, like movie theaters and churches and concert halls, we should give the state a lot of latitude to do that. And this case, uh, the court seems to be developing that line of thinking and to, saying, to be saying something a little bit different. The justices say here, okay, that's the attitude we took in the early months of the pandemic, but it's been several months now. And if the government wants to continue shutting down houses of worship or almost shutting them down, it can't just point to a theoretical risk that they will spread the virus. They have to look at the actual historical data that has accumulated in these several months, and they have to decide whether these particular plaintiffs actually, in fact, have been doing things in their worship services that would spread the virus or that created a risk of spreading the virus. And in this case, there just wasn't any evidence of that. In fact, even the state's briefs in this very litigation were quite complementary of what the plaintiffs had done to mitigate the risk of the virus. So what the justices basically said was, at this point, if you're going to keep treating religious practice so harshly, despite this good track record, we're going to take a much closer look at it. We're going to apply strict scrutiny. I do want to hit two more questions here real quick before we close it out. Building on that point, sort of that earlier decision that gave a little more latitude towards uh, infringing on rights to to deal with the pandemic. You know, I was reading Justice Gorsuch's uh, concurring opinion, and he was talking about the South Bay Pentecostal Church versus Newsom. And so that was an analysis that I think that you're talking about that gave a little more leeway in there. And when I was reading Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion, I got this feeling that he was trolling Chief Justice Roberts a little. So he was undermining that argument as it would apply to the facts of this case in the time that we find ourselves in now. But every time he mentioned Chief Justice Roberts, that name was in all caps and it was in larger font than the surrounding font. So when you read through that, did you get that same feeling or am I just uh, reading too much into that? 
So yeah, I, I totally got the feeling of, of, I don't know if I would call it trolling, but Justice Gorsuch certainly was going after the South Bay concurrence. You know, the all caps thing, I mean, that I wouldn't say that was typographical trolling because that's a pretty standard way for the justices' opinions to refer to each other. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Chief Justice's South Bay opinion was kind of the one that the, the lower courts had been reading the tea leaves of that and saying, hey, we should give lots of latitude to the states. Justice Gorsuch has expressed impatience about that in his own concurring and dissenting opinions over the course of the summer. Uh, and here it kind of really, really burst forth. And, and not only um, not only in his own opinion, but also it captured uh, the opinion of the court to a certain extent. All right. Last question to bring us home. This is the question about relevance. And so at the end of the day, this is just an injunction. And so I guess my question here is what precedential value does that have for other houses of worship in different states that might find themselves in a similar situation? It does have a fair amount of precedential value. The justices have already signaled that uh, because they've already taken a similar case from the Ninth Circuit and sent it back and told the Ninth Circuit judges, hey, you know, take another look at this case in light of what we said in the Diocese of Brooklyn. So uh, this looks like it's going to it's going to create the law that is going to need to be followed, at least until the justices take up another case like this. I'm sure that governors across the country have their legal staffs looking at this and they're going to tailor their orders to it, you know, either to comply with the court's ruling or, or perhaps to try to pick a fight that they think they might be able to win either legally or politically under this ruling. Uh, but I think this is going to be the guiding ruling going forward. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for being here and discussing this case with us. My pleasure. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please subscribe directly to the show in your favorite podcasting app. It's free and we never ask any questions. As always, we'll cite our sources for this episode on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com. And lastly, but not leastly, I want to thank our team, Molly McDonough, our producer, and the LTN production crew for taking such good care of us. Much, much appreciated. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.